So you were a hooker? Yeah, I was a hooker on drugs. Uh, no, I was hooked on the drags. I'm thinking of like what were the slogans in the early 80s, right? And it was the D.A.R.E. campaign, D.A.R.E. to keep kids right. off drags. <laughs> what is it? This is your brain on drags. Yes. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Prog fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Craig and Lee. We're three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so friggin' great. You can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcast. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps to move us up in the ranking so other prog fans can find the show. As I am always want to do when we do a new episode, I want to say welcome, guys. It's been good to, to see you this evening as we get going here. And I think I'm going to start with you tonight, Craig. And what have you been listening to recently? Aside from the new Liquid Tension Experiment album, specifically Rhapsody in Blue, Mm -hmm. if it was vinyl, I would have already worn it out. I've been listening to Magic Pie. (laughs) Good choice. Wow. We haven't traded any texts about this. Uh, The other day, I just got a wild hair and said, what's something I haven't really listened to and need to learn about? And you guys have so many other things covered. I figured I would look for something that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And I remember we have talked about Magic Pie. Yes. And I know nothing about them. And I just started dialing them up on YouTube. And wow. Yeah. They're awesome. They are awesome. Awesome guitar player. Uh, they kind of remind me a little bit of, of Nectar. One of my favorite bands. Serious. Absolutely. How did I not know that about you? Which album um, are you listening to? I am just going through YouTube and letting it through. I'm being force-fed Magic Pie. Listen to a song called Headlines off of the album The Suffering Joy and also the same album Slightly Mad. Both of them are killer songs. Nice. So how did you learn about Magic Pie? Once I got into ACT, there was this whole sort of spinoff of these European bands that were similar to ACT Mm -hmm. and Magic Pie was one of them. Mm. I could put in ACT on pandora and it would start spitting out magic pie i totally got into it i'm gonna do that i'm gonna make an act pandora station king for a day is a great album they're amazing yeah and musicianship wise just really top notch so dude they were on the boat yeah i know we saw them yeah for our listeners there was a boat next to us while we were in port okay so it was a magic pie playing and all these people in the boat next to us are lined up on railings (laughs) They were all digging the concert. It was hilarious. Magic Pie was like, everybody turn around. Look. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge Magic Pie fan. I think I need to go look that up now. Yeah. There's a few bands that we saw on the boat that I wish I would have done more prep. Like Devin was on PN14. Yes. Yeah, I was not into Devin at that time either. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence too, but. So I've hogged the microphone. I'm going to have you hog it a little bit more. What have you been up to since the last time we talked? I was going down a Rachel Flowers rat hole. 
If you're not familiar with Rachel Flowers, mm-hmm. she's a young woman who is blind and can play any Keith Emerson thing right as good as Keith Emerson. And they did a tribute of Keith Emerson after he passed. She played on Endless Enigma, and it was with an orchestra. So the orchestra plays most of Endless Enigma. She comes in and does 30 seconds of piano and then just breaks down in tears. And oh my God, I cried. Absolutely cried watching this thing. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched that video, the one you linked in the text thread yet, but I plan to. Oh God, if you don't cry, you're an android. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, aside from that, I got my last COVID shot yesterday, so I'm at about 50%. Awesome. And Lee, I guess I'll flip the order on you. What have you been up to? And then what have you been listening to? I am 100% COVID vaccinated, which feels pretty good. Well, I took your cue, Tony, from the last show, and I went through a pretty big soundproofing of my studio. So built a whole bunch of rock fiber pods and hung them on the ceiling and walls, and it's making a pretty big difference. Mm -hmm. And that's most of what I've been up to. Most of it's been house and studio kind of oriented. Gotcha. Listening to, um, obviously, Liquid Tension Experiment, so LTE3. Awesome album. The first disc is just freaking killer. Love it. (laughs) Did not think I would like Rhapsody in Blue because United Airlines ran it into the freaking ground. But it is a great version of Rhapsody in Blue, I have to say. Don't like the second disc quite as much because not really into the jams as much. And I have been listening to Transatlantic. I finally got my version of The Absolute Universe. And I have to say, after listening several times, I'm kind of meh on it. I'm not all that impressed with that album. So which version did you end up getting? I got the Forevermore version. Okay. There are songs that I think are standout that I like, but mostly it just kind of reminds me of a Flying Colors album. Hmm. A lot of rock and heavy Neil Morris. I like Pete Ruavis' bass on this. It really cuts through on a lot of things. And I like how much organ Neil Morris is using. There's a whole lot of organ on this album. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it hasn't really clicked with me very much. So I have a question for you to follow up on that. How familiar are you with The Whirlwind? Absolutely. I listen to The Whirlwind a lot. You should be picking up then on most of the references and motifs from The Whirlwind and seeing that connection. How do you feel about that as like that connective tissue? I'm kind of just trying to let the album run through my ears and stand on its own just to kind of see what I like and what I don't. I might do that. I might circle back to the whirlwind and then listen to it again. Yeah, I'm interested in to see if your opinion of this record changes. Yeah. So for me, since we're all doing a COVID update, I will have my second shot and be fully vaccinated as of 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. I'm looking forward to being fully vaccinated across the group and we can start recording in person instead of doing the Zoom thing. Like the rest of us, I've been listening to a lot of LTE3. As I've mentioned in the past, our company does every third Friday off, and I've been making pilgrimages to the local record store. I picked up Stormwatch by Jethro Tull. Oh, classic. I didn't really have much Tull experience. Mm -hmm. I, I loved that record. And so I started playing around with some of the Tull back catalog. Really been deep diving on that recently. And then over the past three or four days, I am deep in the throes of frost. Ah, yes. And then in terms of what I've done, um, I started with doing acoustic treatment and it's turned into basically renovating my entire office. <laughs> like right in front of me, I've got my MIDI controller and some other stuff sitting right here. So like I've got a whole proper recording set up here now. Back to your Jethro Tull. So are you going back and listening to 
you know, the obvious thick as a brick and Aqualung and stand up. Yes. And- yeah. Aqualung has been really, really getting heavy rotation for me. I have thick as a brick. And some of these are Stephen Wilson remasters. Aqualung just had its, I'm going to get the math wrong. 50th anniversary. And Ian Anderson did a 90 minute Facebook thing. Yeah, I saw that. And as an Aqualung nerd from when it came out, it was fascinating. I was thinking about it the other day when I was listening to it. There's some of these bands where Jethro Tull feels a little bit like Arion, where it's really Ian Anderson's thing. Ding, 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 ding. There's your Arion reference. There it is. I get that now in some of these, and that's kind of where I was just a young guy and I'm learning this stuff. Thick as a Brick is one of my top 10 albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the body of the show for tonight, I wanted to just do a quick round of any news or new releases that you guys know of that you wanted to make sure you highlighted before we get into the show. Not a lot. The queue has been dumped a little bit with LTE3 and the Transatlantic and all the rest. Kayak is still May 7th, Out of This World. Yep. Frost. Yes. May 14th. New Frost single. They dropped a new single, Day and Age, which I love. Damn good song. And the only other one I know of that I'm really watching is District 97 is releasing a double live album called Screenplay. Huh. And they've been promoting the hell out of it. District 97, if you're listening, call me. That's the only ones I know about. Cool. So I just have a couple of little news things. I'm starting to see acts that are starting to reschedule dates. I saw that Arena has actually scheduled some dates in October. Yes. The Cruise has a new set of dates. They haven't released any bands yet. Yeah, there's a lot of angry people how are you guys feeling about the covid situation with going to shows also as part of this been seeing um groups like Ticketmaster and others start to float the idea of these covid vaccine passports that you'd have to be able to prove that you were vaccinated mm-hmm. and how are you guys feeling about that i'm all in for it because i want to go see some max yeah i'm vaccinated It looks like we may be getting to the end of this as it pertains to concerts and live performance. I am ready. I am hopeful. All right. With that, I will turn it over to Craig. Tonight's show, we're going to talk about the Dixie Dregs. And the Dixie Dregs is a band that for mostly my college years and a little bit afterwards, I was obsessed with to the point of I made it my mission to drag people to Dixie Drag shows and make sure that they saw the Steve Morse Dixie Dregs. Um, I was very successful. I had a lot of converts. I didn't have a lot of friends, but I always had people that were willing to go to drag shows with me. So I want to just start with one clip just to kind of set up what the Dixie Dregs were capable of. I kind of feel like it's worth starting out with some music. And by the way, recording all of these clips, each one of their songs is so rich in stuff, it was really hard figuring out what 30 seconds to grab. Yeah, it always is. This is just a sampling of what the Dixie Dregs are capable of. That's for our listeners that have no idea what the Dixie Dregs do. Even today, still, I got very excited there. I just saw a glimpse of Teenage Craig. Teenage Craig kind of snuck out there. I was ready to light my lighter. 
So how do the dregs fit into the Craig timeline versus a band like Genesis? Oh, okay. So that's a good question. So uh, Genesis for me was high school. Dixie Dregs for me was college. Ah, okay. Got it. And I'll talk about some of that timeline a little bit. What I wanted to show there is that's not even like one of their famous songs. You know, I, I kind of talk about Dixie Dregs canon, meaning, you know, every show is going to have the bash probably, which is a kind of a bluegrassy thing. I'll play a clip from that in a bit. Every show is probably going to have cruise control because they've been doing that since the early days. It just shows the technique more than anything. And I know we're going to beat this horse to death in the course of our discussion tonight. But the thing that has always captivated me about Dixie Dregs and specifically Steve Morse is his technique is very unique, kind of unusual, and it's just always spoken to me. Mm -hmm. If I was able to play guitar and write music, that's what I would play and write. Really? Yeah. First time I heard it live, that's kind of what I thought. Interesting. So I talk about evangelizing the Dixie Dregs, and I sort of feel like I dropped the ball with you guys, because I dragged you guys to the reunion concert. It was exactly three years to the night that we saw the Dixie Dregs. Wow. Three years? That's even more than I thought it was. Feels like two, because, you know, one, we'd have lost year. That's like a whole gap in our collective memory. So I feel bad that I dragged you guys to that, because they were touring with their second to the last studio album called Unsung Heroes. In my humble opinion, not their best work. It's their first real studio album. It's not in my rotation. I still listen to other Dregs albums. I don't listen to that by choice. And it was kind of the old fat guy tour, right? They all came out of retirement. And a lot of guys are doing that now, where they go and they play just an album end to end. Oh, yeah. They didn't pick the right one, but uh, that's all the guys they could get was people that were available from that one album. You know, I don't remember not liking that show. I guess I wanted you to drop to your knees at the end of the show and throw your hands up in the air like at a Neil Moore show. No, no, you know? sorry. <laughs> it, it definitely wasn't that good for me. Sorry. Yeah. But I thought it was a decent concert. I mean, it was decent, but I wanted more. Okay. I bought the tickets and I got us what I thought were going to be great seats. And I really thought they were pretty awful seats because mm-hmm. they were way off to the side. Steve Morris was on the other side. Uh, yeah, off in the corner. That's right. The Boulder Theater. I was going to say there's not a bad seat in the house, but there is, and we got three of them. Yep, that's accurate. Yeah, the way they put those seats down there, yeah. Yep, I think we were on the outside of the PA even. Yeah, it just it was not good. So I dropped the ball. I guess, in theory, part of my hope for tonight is to convert you guys. Okay. So we'll see how that goes. I want to hear where this story goes. In researching this and trying to come to grips with it, I've realized how much I loathe Americana sound. I mentioned that before on the Kansas episode, not liking it, but now I realize how much I loathe that sound. Mm-hmm. Right. We're going to get into this, I'm sure, later, but I think that that's actually what got in the way of me engaging with Steve Morse, mm-hmm. because I have a different understanding of Steve Morse's technique now, and I have a different opinion on that, but I want to see where this goes. Tell me what you mean by Americana, because that's an adjective that I had never really heard when describing the Dixie Dregs or Steve Morris's music. My wife listens to a lot of like folk music, uh-huh. things like American Pie and stuff like that. Probably what, mid 60s to late 70s kind of sound. You mean Don McLean, American Pie? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, I okay. do. That bluegrassy sound, I'm not really mm-hmm. keen on that. Anything that gets like that close to country, I'm not really into. Although, interestingly, I was doing my own inventory about this and noticed that like, I have no problem with blues players at all. Hmm. But these more kind of folksy rock players, I just, I'm not into that. 
And I'm copying to that because we spent a whole lot of, or at least I spent a whole lot of energy on our text thread about technique. And I wasn't even really getting to the technique because like, I was already mentally writing off Steve Morse. Mm-hmm. And I have a different opinion of his technique now that I've done a lot more research on that specifically. I'm very interested in where you go here with the dregs and how they appeal to you and why they appeal to you. Because I know you from a totally different vantage point here. And I want to see how this lines up in that Venn diagram of who Craig is. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I totally agree. Going back to Patchwork, you said, if I was a guitar player, that's the kind of music I would write. Uh And that song really does have a heavy bluegrass feel. And that really surprises me. What about that sound appeals to you so much? You know what appeals to me about it is, this is going to sound horrible. It's the rapid succession of notes. Ah, so the arpeggiating. Yeah. Yeah. So that little machine gun thing that he does at the end there, Mm -hmm. that's what I love. And you also like that one five walking bass, doom, doom, doom. It's almost like a tub bass. Yeah, it does sound like a stand up bass. It's not so much that. It's the the sixteenth and thirty second note runs. Yeah, they're in some scale, but I'm not really sure what scale they are. Okay, there's like chromatics in there, and mm-hmm. I'm getting into the weeds. It's just the something about it. I don't think you're in the weeds at all, especially if we want to talk about Steve Morse in this. Once I was able to set down my bias about the musical style, Mm -hmm. I found an amazing video on his technique, and I'm going to put that in the show notes as a link. The alternate picking style he uses, plus some of his physicality with like his stroking hand and also his fret hands, that is actually a very uniquely a Steve Morse thing, something people study. Mm Mm-hmm. I learned a lot more and have a completely different appreciation for his technique, regardless of the musical style, once I learned that. And people that that are like really religiously fans of Steve Morse are fans of this. He plays non-traditional scales. He plays things that most people wouldn't fit them together, but he has an intuition about it that ends up making it work somehow. Again, I don't like the necessarily the musical genre, but I, I do appreciate that ability of his to play that way. Cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's playing these uh, 16th and 32nd notes, but I don't call that really shredding. Mm, no, I wouldn't either. When I hear shredding, you know, I'm not a guitar player, so I can't really speak to it, but it's different. Mm-hmm. It was nice to have that mechanics piece, Tony. Yeah, thank you. Because I would have never known to listen for that. Hey, I contributed to the Steve Morse episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is an aside. I really need to go back and listen to Ariane more. I did not give them nearly the amount of attention. Oh, don't that- try sucking up in the middle of your show. That's just like... <laughs> Guess who didn't drop the Arion reference in this episode? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh, son of a bitch. That's, we're way off the bingo card now. Shit. If you think back about the music that was popular around when the dregs were a thing, you know, roughly uh, 1977 to 1982, mm-hmm. the dregs were a five-piece. Bass, drums, guitar, keys, and fiddle. Mm-hmm. And what would typically happen is people would listen to the Dixie Dregs and say, is that Kansas? I can see that. And I was one of them. So thinking way back to the very first time I heard um, the Dixie Dregs, I'm going to play literally the clip that I heard in some guy's garage in Florida when I was living there in the summer. And he put on this clip.
So I heard that and thought, oh, wow, new Kansas album. Mm-hmm. It's like an eight-minute song. And before that passage, there's a real mellow, beautiful electric violin bit as well. But the two of them together just make you think, oh, yeah, Kansas. Yeah, and like, that doesn't have the twangy sound to me. Right. I didn't mind that quite as much at all. It's very prog, yeah. That's probably one of their most prog songs. It's called Odyssey. It's got a bunch of different movements. Yeah. Dream Theater covered that in one of their albums. Now, this is before T. Lavitz joined, right? Uh, yeah, that was before T. Lavitz. That was their second album or their second studio album, What If? To Tony's point, I want to circle back to something. Most of the Dregs songs that you heard, most of their albums have a classical acoustic thing. Most of them have a country thing. Most of them have a proggy thing. Most of them have a straight ahead rock and roll thing. Mm-hmm. And most of them, except for like the classical pieces, have the thing that you identify as kind of twangy. So it was kind of luck of the draw that you got a twangy bit when you listened. You mean when we went to see them in concert? Well, you were saying that you have this aversion towards their Americana sound. Mm-hmm. Each one of their albums, depending on what you chose to listen to when you formulated your opinion of them. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Actually, so where is your opinion that they're Americana from, from the uh, concert? Not just the concert. And it may be that, you know, I was going through your playlist and a lot of like the things that I heard on there, a couple, two or three from Freefall. Uh-huh. Those all seem to kind of have that same vibe. Then I started skipping around on YouTube, listening to different things. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is just luck of the draw that I ended up on that a lot, but I did get that vibe a lot. And maybe they're twangier than I am willing to admit. Well, I didn't think that last song was twangy, just the first one. I agree. Like, there were parts, if I closed my eyes, that could have been on an Arion record. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been Kansas. Yeah. I like the off-tempo and the synth especially. Cool. Mm-hmm. That was my first exposure to the Dixie Dregs, but I did not fall in love with them. The guitar didn't stand out to me. I really liked more the keyboard parts, and that's why I chose that clip, because mm-hmm. it's got a lot of organ, a lot of synth. That's really what dragged me in. But they did seem like a band that I would pay attention to. The next fall, I saw that they were coming to a theater in Philly, Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, the oldest still working theater in the English-speaking world. Oh, nice. And it's still operational. Just happened to catch them there. Didn't really know what to expect, because I had heard that one song, and that was pretty much it. They were off my radar. There was no YouTube. So they were touring with uh, their second-to-the-last studio album called What If? T. Lavitz had joined the band. And for that particular tour, they always opened with a song called Divided We Stand. And that song starts out quietly with just a very slow snare drum going. Some guitar kind of comes in gently and mellowly, and then the bass kind of comes in, a little bit of piano and a little bit of Irish jig sounding thing. And then this uh, guitar solo at about a minute and 30 into the song comes on, and I'm going to play that now. So a minute and 30 into the concert or a minute and 50 in the concert, that happened. 
I threw my arms up and that was my religious experience. It's like, what the heck was that? And the concert just got better from there. And I was a convert. Mm. Like, do you remember your first Guinness? (laughs) (laughs) They say your first Guinness is supposed to be religious. So Steve Morse with a head on it. That was uh, what did it for me. So what if is the album you pick them up on? So this album, I might've called it what if. This was Unsung Heroes, I apologize. Oh, okay. Uh, their second to last album. So that's when I jumped in. Mm-hmm. They started off on Capricorn Records, which was the Allman Brothers label. That song kind of had a little Allman Brothers feel to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They actually cover Allman Brothers in, from time to time in, in shows. But anyway, they got a, a three-record deal with Arista, and they were just touring incessantly. If it's not obvious, one of the things that really speaks to me is kind of that signature Steve Morris lick. Mm-hmm. You asked what about it that I liked, what would I play? I wanted to just grab an example signature lick so it's obvious what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, that was actually Steve Morris band. That wasn't from uh, a direct album. Mm. I saw them a bunch of times tour with Industry Standard. They always opened with the Divided We Stand. They always opened with that great guitar solo. It was awesome. Then in 82, they came out with their last album, which was called Industry Standard. What's interesting about that is Arista was doing everything that they could to make them marketable, short of embracing them for who they were. <laughs> mm-hmm. They changed from the Dixie Dregs to the Dregs. They were on every talk show in the world. You know, there's so much stuff on YouTube of the Dixie Dregs being on American Bandstand and Tom Snyder and uh, Industry Standard. They did two songs with vocals, and I'm not going to play a clip of that because that's anathema to what the Dixie Dregs are. They had one song that was a duet with Steve Morris and Steve Howell, but the clip I'm going to play, it's the song that whenever they would enter into it, Andy West. He was the guy who always announced all the songs. He was the guy that did all the uh, speaking during the concerts. So he always had a little bit of patter about each song. And whenever he introduced blood-sucking leeches, he would always say, this is a song about the record industry. So I wanted to just check in with you guys, because the last two clips, Mm -hmm. they still have that kind of Americana vibe, that folksy vibe to me. And I want to just check in with you guys if you picked that up or if that's just me. It's still hard for me to know exactly what you mean by Americana, but I definitely agree that a lot of this rides the edge of country music. Um, I can agree with the twangy comment. Yeah. So does that just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, Tony? Well, it does. As I've already acknowledged, like I have my own bias there and I'm trying to look through that bias. And like I said, I'm really trying to understand how this is resonating with Craig, given everything else I know about you. I'm really trying to figure out what about the dregs and I guess Steve Morse's playing here is really resonating with you. Like what hole is that filling? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. 
I've always liked guitar music, even though I'm a keyboard player. Mm -hmm. I've tried to play guitar a million times and it's never gelled. I look at a piano keyboard and every note makes sense. Mm -hmm. Where you would use it, what it's for, etc. Look at a guitar, fretboard, no idea. But I love good guitar music. Maybe come at it from a different angle. I mentioned that I still actually really like blues music. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about blues music? And how do you feel about the guitar you find on like pop era Genesis or something like that? Does it vibe with you the same way that this does? Nothing vibes with me the way this does. That's why I became so infatuated with it. Okay. Some of Satriani and Steve Vai has gotten close. Eric Johnson, not as much. But again, it's just me, you know? Yeah, I know a guitarist that you like, maybe not as much, but close, is Jeff Beck. Yes. So Jeff Beck, yeah, no, you're right. I probably listen to more Jeff Beck nowadays than I do Steve Morris, Dixie Dregs. Yeah, it's got a little Jeff Beck flow for me. You know, it's a five piece. But if you took out the violins, sometimes it's got a little ring of like Beck Bogart Apathy. Mm-hmm. And then on to Wired, Blow by Blow, all those. Absolutely. And several of his songs he attributes to being influenced by Jeff Beck. And there's no doubt that they're aware of each other's music. Right. Steve Morris has played with just about everybody at one time or another. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware that he's ever done anything with Jeff Beck. You know, he played on Eliza Minnelli album. I'm not surprised after what I've learned in researching for this episode. I mean, I would not be surprised to find that Steve Morris like wrote scores for television commercials. He basically has created a bunch of stock music that people can use for like commercials. That's really cool. Actually. Stuff. I mean, that's one of the things he does to pay, pay the bills. Anyway, their backstory is pretty well known. They uh, were formed at the University of Miami. Steve and uh, Rod Morgenstern were classmates. Rod is the drummer. And what's interesting is, as unique as Steve Morse is as a guitar player, I've heard from drummers that Rod Morgenstern's drumming also has an element of, you know, quote-unquote weirdness. He's actually a left-handed drummer, I've been told. You know, the snare's in the middle, and then all the stuff goes off to the left instead of off to the right. Mm. Yet another Dixie Dregs urban legend. Back in the 70s, when they were in school, I heard an interview with him recently. He was like, yeah, all the guitar players had, like, big hair, and they were all playing the same licks and doing the same stuff. And then there was Steve off in a corner doing... Totally weird, different, fusion-y, bizarre stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's where I want to be. So uh, they started a college band and uh, never stopped. Cool. You know, one of the uh, interesting things about Steve Morse, you know, the guy's really prolific. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned before, every one of the albums has some mix of a country song, a classical song, a straight-ahead rocker. As a musician who really doesn't write but sort of understands writing, it really kind of clicked with me. He does these things, I don't know if he calls them melody chasers, but he describes it as, you know, I'm going to write a song and I don't really care about anything but following the melody where it goes. So we're not really going to give a shit about key signatures. We're not going to give a shit about time signatures. We're not even going to try and write it down necessarily. We're just going to organically follow this melody and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. The reason I found that interesting is of all of the Dixie Dreg songs, this is kind of in my top 10. And this is one of his first examples of this Chasing the Melody song. It's called Night Meets Light, and it closes out the second album, What If. 
like that a lot. And that's another one that playing a 30 second clip is almost criminal. It's a five or six minute song, maybe seven. And it just starts and it ends and it goes up and it's got crescendos. It's got quiet bits and it's just freaking gorgeous. Yeah. This is where you grab me on the show notes and uh, recommended listening. I think I've seen the dregs with you. I don't know, four times now, maybe Mm -hmm. Uh, these kind of songs. I always felt a little bit lost, but the way you laid it out in the show notes from sleep on the first album to, to now this one, I was able to follow it more as a thread and a concept. Yeah, I only learned this uh, idea about the melody chasing a couple weeks ago from some interview I listened to and getting ready to do this. Right. And that made me go back and re-listen to all of the albums. Because like I say, each album has one of these. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that I'm not a fan of, I guess, on Freefall, their first album, which Sleep is on, is you could tell that the songwriting hasn't quite gelled. And it might just be the production, I don't know. But, you know, it hasn't gelled quite to where what if is, you know, it's like, oh, there they are. They are now almost fully formed. They've got good producers. The songs are a little bit tighter. And each subsequent album has one of these songs. I don't want to say they get better because I think this is the best one, but there's a bunch of them. So here's my anecdote about Night Meets Light, though. They would never play it in concert. And we were at this one show. Um, and it was like at this outdoor venue outside of Atlantic City. And we were just being goofballs and wrote on a note that said, play Night Meets Light. And we crumbled it up and threw it on the stage and went and listened to the concert. Son of a gun. Next time we saw him in concert, played Night Meets Light. And I think every time since then, uh, they've played that song. So I take full credit for that. Cool. So I know I keep pushing back on the idea that it sounds twangy, but it's just not. It's just his style, maybe. I don't know. But then you listen to something like this, and I guess I might be wrong. talked about how prolific steve morris is i didn't know he was on the grand Ole opry yeah sorry man but tony's right on this one there it doesn't get much fucking twangier than that <laughs> that's uh their take on a bluegrass classic called the wabash cannonball mm-hmm. that version is called the bash it's another crowd favorite yet again playing 30 seconds of it is criminal because it starts fast and just gets much faster and just goes nuts at the end but it's a, you know, it's a crowd pleaser. People love it. So question for Tony. Sure. Having grown up in Mississippi, I'm assuming you heard stuff like that a lot. What exactly is so grating about it to you? Is it the fact that like every house band played something like that? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't necessarily even that because that was actually a little extreme. That was much more bluegrassy. The more Americana sound that we've talked about in the previous samples. Yeah. Like anytime I went to a club to a show or anything, or even just go to the flipping mall, like that would be the kind of just house music everywhere. And I think that's more of an artifact of 
just the fact that it was South Mississippi and, and all of that. Right. But that wasn't my vibe. It's never been my vibe. Right. Mm -hmm. That's where I was trying to own that part of it in terms of I'm probably just biased and I'm trying to get past that. What I don't like about it is musically, I can't even put my finger on it. I think it's just a personal preference, a personal taste. So I don't like it. Maybe it was overexposed to me growing up. Sure. As I've talked about previously, I grew up in a household where we were listening to a lot of fusion jazz and stuff like that. I was much more gravitating towards that end of the spectrum. And then I came into my own, with my own musical taste, that rock industrial stylings in the 90s. This was just never part of it for me. Although, as I think I included this on the text thread, I definitely always appreciated the blues legacy of Mississippi. Hmm. And so that part of it was never a problem for me. Right. Got it. So you appreciated the blues, but you didn't like the blues style music that was being played or was it? No. So actually I want to be clear, like in my mind, there's a difference between bluegrass and blues. Like they're very different. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And even the Americana sound, what I described in the Kansas episode. Mm hmm. That's different than the blues, too. Like, one of my favorites by B.B. King is a song he did called Back in L.A. The very specific technique he plays in that song, I like a lot. I get a lot of proficiency out of that. And I don't doubt that there's proficiency from Steve Morse in these tracks. I'm trying to get past the style that I'm not a fan of so that I can appreciate the technique. You know, it's interesting because I'm being an empathetic listener and imagining music that I hate. <laughs> and no matter how good the musicianship is, I'll never like country music. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Yeah, no way. You know, it's not the twangy guitar that I mind. I can't stand a twangy voice. Mm -hmm. So when Steve Howe plays pedal steel, does that bug you? That's a Tony question. No, I meant that for you. You and I are both huge Yes fans, and Steve Howe plays a ton of pedal steel guitar. So to me, no. I love Steve Howe's steel guitar, but if And You and I sounded like And You and I, you know, um, I'd have a hard time with that. Yeah, and I don't like that sound. I'm not a fan of steel guitar. Right. I'm not either. I'm a big Steve Howe fan, but I've never really liked his pedal steel work. Really? I once lost a bar argument, but I did argue vehemently that And You and I was the best song ever written. How can that be when Heart of the Sunrise is the best Yes song ever written? Wait a minute, we're in the wrong episode now. So uh, anyway, you know, they broke up, and then the Steve Morse band happened, which was a power trio. And one of the things that really cemented my opinion of Steve Morse as an insanely talented musician was... The first time I saw a Steve Morris band live, mm -hmm. they were playing Odyssey, which is the song that everybody thought was Kansas, that in real life has an organ, and it has violins and, you know, a whole bunch of different parts. And how can a three-piece pull this off? He played it, and it was as good or better than the dregs ever played. Holy shit, okay, this guy's the real deal. So I'm going to play a clip from an early Steve Morris band album. And I believe it's from the first one. You know, what's interesting, when the dregs were a thing, you know, Steve wrote all the songs except one. And so he's writing songs where he figures there's going to be a piano part and there's going to be a violin part. But in his brain, he's writing for, you know, a five piece. 
And I think Kansas followed a similar trajectory where when they got past left overture and point of no return, it sort of felt like the violin started to become a little bit throwaway. It wasn't as prominent in the songwriting as the early work. And I kind of got that might be what was happening when Steve Moore's band happened. He's like, oh, great. Mm. I can finally just write stuff that's, you know, bass, guitar, and drums. But anyway, here, this is a a representative song from, uh, from the first Steve Moore's band album. And that's a tune that he has said in concert was inspired to some degree by Jeff Beck. Yeah, that's more of a rock sound to me. That's a normal, traditional rock song. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there is a little bit of organ in there, but, you know, in concert, the organ wasn't there. And Steve Morris actually did the organ bits. That's kind of what they did. And, you know, they continued as the Steve Morris band for some time. And I kind of stopped following them. Some of this stuff started to get a little bit repetitive to me. So in between the Dixie Dregs and the Steve Morse band, Steve was doing whatever he could, I guess, to pay the bills or do music. I think he even was a pilot. Back in the 80s, do you remember this, Lee? The Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, Paco Di Lucia stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of those albums. Uh, he uh, toured with them for a portion of the tour. And Tony, when you talk about uh, holding your own, mm-hmm. you know, this is three insanely incredible acoustic guitar players just doing you know stuff and he came out for the encore and it was interesting because one of the things about when you see steve morse play he really is one of those guys that makes it look effortless Mm -hmm. very loose you know kind of nod his head and a zillion notes come out maybe that's also part of the appeal it's like he's so good he doesn't look like he's you know clenched over the guitar and you know fighting for every note Yeah, and that came out when I was researching this video I'm going to link in the show notes. His picking style has everything to do with that. Mm -hmm. And the alternate picking that he uses and how he rotates his hand through the strum Mm -hmm. to be able to get the inner strings and, and hit them, he actually is expending less effort but getting many more notes out of it than a lot of people when they arpeggiate on the guitar. And... I'm not going to do nearly as good of a job as this video. So listeners, um, definitely take a look at that video that I link in the notes there, because it's going to explain this on a very different level. Wow. Got it. That's cool. And he has rehearsed it and practiced it so much that it does look effortless. Mm -hmm. Exactly. When he was on stage with Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, and Paco Di Lucia, he had a piece of music on the ground in front of him, and he was working. (laughs) <laughs> mm. you know i'm sure they practiced and i'm sure they rehearsed and it sounded right. incredible but it was not chill steve moore's he had to work to keep up with those guys and he did i mean it was awesome place went nuts so anyway he did those shows i saw him at carnegie hall and i can remember i, I tried to look it up and i couldn't find it i don't remember if it was his show or if it was just a show with a whole bunch of guitar players during a classical portion of this concert my friend fell asleep now, Carnegie Hall is acoustically a very live room. 
So there we are, kind of like right in the middle of the audience. It's kind of some quiet, acoustic-y kind of stuff going on. And my friend is snoring, and it can be heard everywhere, including on stage. <laughs> I don't remember who was playing, because there's a ton of guitar players. But they're like doing their thing, and my friend's like... And the dude playing guitar like looks up. So I, I elbowed him and woke him up, but um, that was embarrassing. Wow. And during the Steve Morse portion, he said, I want to bring out a very special guest, great friend of mine, and also an incredible guitar player. Any takers of who that might have been? No clue. You'll never guess, I I'll just tell you. Peter Frampton. What? Oh, man. Yeah. And they did this uh, acoustic duet, and it was beautiful. Oh, nice. And uh, it's like, yeah, son of a bitch, Peter Frampton can play. Because I never had a very high regard of Peter Frampton, because I only knew him from uh, Frampton Comes Alive and Sells It Frampton Comes Alive. That album got played into the that ground. Was so huge. Have you heard of that, Tony? Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, for like a year, that was the most uh, annoying, popular thing on the planet. Yeah, everybody thought Peter Frampton invented the talk, the talk box. box. Yep. Steve, he was hustling and just not getting anywhere. They were all small venues. You knew that it had to be hand to mouth. Steve Morse Band was probably not much more successful. Sounds like there was a lot of uh, record company screwing going on. And the Deep Purple thing came along. He auditioned like anybody else did, I guess. Got the gig. And you can't fault the guy for going from a startup to going to work for, you know, Verizon or AT&T. Yeah. Steady paycheck. Gets to play great guitar parts, you know, great rock and roll guitar parts. Not my thing, you know, I've never really been a Deep Purple fan. I haven't either, yeah. Yep. I'll tell you what, they got a hell of a lot larger fan base than the Dregs ever had. Yeah, one thing that struck me when I was researching, it was an interview but about Steve Morse and his time in Deep Purple. I guess he's, at this point, been there for like over half of the albums or whatever. Yeah, more than twice as long as the Dregs did anything. In the interview, they were accrediting Steve Morse and his amical personality and his force of will for keeping Deep Purple alive. Because I guess before he joined, there was a lot of infighting in the band. It wasn't really going well. And he was kind of seen as a stabilizing force. No kidding. Interesting. It's not necessarily relevant to his playing style or musicality or anything. But I just found that interesting of like how that works out. Well, bands really are like little families and little companies. and. One of the who said, I'd never pick any of them as friends, but I'd absolutely never pick anybody else as bandmates. Mm -hmm. When you're with somebody day in and day out for years and years and years, it's like being married to four other guys. It is. Props to him for serving that role. And, you know, one of the things that has seemed to happen over the years, Steve Morse, uh, he seems to be getting arthritis and it's affected his playing style and his ability to do the, uh, the machine gun chords. And I think that was another reason why the show we saw three years ago tonight was also not as orgasm-inducing as I was hoping for, because he's just not playing like that anymore. Like when we saw Flying Colors on the boat, right? Uh, same thing. I have this template of what every Steve Morris performance should be, and no recent ones have really satisfied that. Right. Because I remember you and I saw him, God, eight years ago now, backing up Joe Satriani. Oh, yeah, right. And I remember that show being kind of flat as well. And I went back through Flying Colors in prep for the show. And I don't know, I just am not that impressed with that band. I mean, the music is fine. It's good rock and roll, but none of it just really stands out to me that much. 
Yeah, they're sort of like poppy-ish. Yeah, I kind of listened to it once and I'm good for the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like rice with no butter. It's like not a lot of spice. Yeah, and I think that comes back to your comment about time and place. And I guess even some of the notes on like Steve Morse as an influential guitar player. I feel still a little bit unclear on like how exactly it fits into the tapestry of Craig. Mm-hmm. But I'm just going to like go out on a limb and say that it does right now. Oh, it t- well, it totally does. But, you know, from the playing style perspective, I'm still not there on that part of it, although I do respect some of the peculiarities of how he plays and the influence of that. Um, He feels like a very organic player. Mm -hmm. He's got a very intuitive, maybe not organic is the right word, maybe intuitive is a better word. He just knows what to do. um, And I think that that may lend why he can do so many different styles. Mm -hmm. But... I'm still not sold on necessarily on Steve Morse being one of my favorite guitarists. And I agree with Lee where I was going with this is even though I don't like flying colors, yeah, not super big fan of the dregs or deep purple. I respect the continuity of Steve Morse and what he's done. Yeah. He has achieved quite a bit. One of the things I was going to say to what you just said is when you see him live, one of the things that he really excels at, is his improvisational skills mm-hmm. are through the roof. And what's an interesting counterpoint there, if we're going to play Genesis Bingo, one of my observations of them, at least before they turned pop, was everything was note for note. They didn't mm-hmm. jam at all, never took a solo. Steve Hackett you know, got spanked if he played a couple extra notes here or there. Tixie Dregs, absolutely the opposite. His improvisational abilities in a lot of the songs are just legend. I'm glad that you went that angle, because even though I was kind of meh after the drag show that we went to, mm-hmm. one thing I did like was that feel being privy to a jam band, just kind of hanging out. Because mm-hmm. even live with prepared songs that they've played for decades, it still ha- definitely had that feel to me. Absolutely. I mean, their solos went prescribed amounts of time. I don't think they varied from that, but the content of the solos... Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was very different night after night. Yeah, I agree with that. And coming up in bar bands, I had a guitar player, Fred. Hey, shout out to Fred. That Go Fred. It was totally into dregs. He had industry standard, and I think he had what if. And I just remember tuning out the bluegrassy kind of twangy country stuff uh, in favor of the other dregs tunes. Mm-hmm. But later, I also became a big T. Lavitz fan. I really liked the band he did with Billy Cobham, Jazz is Dead. And so I sort of had one foot into the drugs world and one foot out. Like we agreed, I think a lot of it was time and place. Um, A lot of it was new and different. As far as those Southern songs go, you know, I mentioned a couple of times, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and didn't hear a lot of twangy stuff and didn't have anything negative about it. So when he does a version of the bash or, you know, one of the other sort of country-ish songs, to me, they worked pretty well, and there was a huge novelty component that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I was going to ask, are you interested in them because they're kind of exotic? Yeah, they're different and uh, weird, and, you know, the furthest south I went was Delaware, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that explains a lot. And I'm talking North Delaware. Hanging out with Joe Biden, huh? Yeah, oh yeah, me and Joe were like this. <laughs> In all the the videos and stuff I've watched, he seems like a very personable guy. Like when you 
had the opportunity to talk to him. What kind of vibe did you get from him just like standing there on the boat? Uh, it was hard to get a vibe because I was so nervous. I got starstruck around those guys. I got starstruck around Adrian Blue. Come to think of it, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of Steve Morris where he's not smiling ear to ear. I agree. Yeah. You know, he's doing what he wants to do. Still has to play smoke on the water every night. <laughs> yeah. I bet that doesn't get old. He's like one of those super duper duper overachieve. Tony, he makes you look lazy. And that's... uh. Wait, what? I am lazy. You are a renaissance man's renaissance man. But Steve's work ethic appears insane. Since we're, we're kind of piling on the, the praise for him as a human being here, one of the things <laughs> I really wanted to do was mention that even in recent years, in the past two, three years of interviews, every time I've watched a video with him being asked about his style, his career, anything, there is this childlike wonder and eagerness and enthusiasm that comes across when he's talking about it. And I super appreciate that. Forget the music. That's just inspirational that there's people like that. Yeah, I agree. And very, very humble about uh, his skills and abilities and accomplishments. And, you know, I should have really just said all of those things to him on the boat. Because I think instead I went, I love you, Steve. (laughs) you're my hero (laughs) all right so i have one last clip that i'll close with i talked about cruise control being you know dixie dregs canon it's in every show everybody knows it's probably one of their most famous songs we'll end with a little clip of cruise control The Dixie Dregs burnt hot and fast. They only did seven albums. It was over the course of seven or eight years. I was fortunate that, you know, I was around to see peak Dregs. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it was not a lot of time. You know, it was great music for me at a time that was very transitional in my life, where I was going from being a kid in high school to being an independent human being. Yep. There you have it. Dixie Dregs in under 60 minutes. Thank you. Awesome, Craig. Thank you very much. As we get into the tail end of the show here, Craig, do you have anything to recommend for the listeners? You know, in the spirit of having talked about the dregs now, I just want to kind of recommend the albums from Peak Dregs, uh, Night of the Living Dregs, which is part live album, part studio album, Dregs of the Earth, which has T. Lavitz, and Unsung Heroes, which was their last album that had no vocal tracks. All three of those are just top-notch, great albums, and like we talked about, it has a little bit of everything in each of the albums. You can't go wrong with any Dregs album, but those are really peak Dregs. Night of the Living Dregs, Dregs of the Earth, Unsung Heroes. Awesome. And how about you, Lee? Yeah, I'll continue the Dregs theme. I was sort of an in-and-out Dregs fan, but my guitar player in one of my bands was a huge Dregs fan, and he loved Industry Standard. Highly recommend that album. Awesome. And my recommendation is going to be the video series I'm going to put in the show notes a specific video from Troy Grady, the video I mentioned earlier in the show about the technique that Steve Morse uses, his physicality of how he gets his picking done. It's actually, that's one part of a bigger video series by Troy. 
And I'm going to recommend that once you've watched that one video, you go back and watch the entire series because it's an amazing scientific breakdown of how Steve does what he does and why Steve Morse is so special. It's fascinating. So as we exit here, don't forget that you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or you can contact us directly via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you guys about what kind of topics you would like to hear us talk about on the show and any indie bands you want to recommend or anything at all. If you want to show us support, it's easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Don't forget to take a moment and hit the subscribe button. That way you get notified when new episodes come out. And also, if you would like to throw us a few coins and support us financially so we can keep the back catalog online, you can support us on Coffee at coffee.com slash up3show. I'll put the link for that in the show notes. And we'll talk to you next month. Bye. Bye. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on Prague music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.